In a certain way, I'm a startup. Even though I've been in this 50 years to close your gallery, all the staff disperses, the artists all go to different galleries. Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is The Art Angle, a podcast from Artnet News where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. As we come to the close of 2020, it can be hard to keep everything that happened this year in one's head at the same time, even when it comes to the art world alone. With all the many shocks to the system that this year has given us, it's worth asking, to paraphrase the Gauguin painting, where does the art world come from? What is it? post-COVID, post-George Floyd, and where are we going? If you were looking for a wise man to ask that question, you could do worse than go to Jeffrey Deitch. A veritable zealot of the art industry, Jeffrey pretty much single-handedly invented the concept of art finance before starting his own ultra-hip downtown gallery empire and then becoming the director of Los Angeles' Museum of Contemporary Art. And then, after a stunning reversal of fortune, becoming a pioneer of the kind of hybrid in-person-slash-virtual art business that we are likely to now see become the norm. For this penultimate episode of 2020, I'm very pleased to have Jeffrey Deitch on the show today to talk about the highly instructive arc of his career to date and where things may be going next. Thanks very much for coming on The Art Angle, Jeffrey. Well, thank you, Andrew. I want to tell you that I look at Artnet News every morning, and on the weekends, when you have repeats of Friday, I somehow I miss it. I can't wait until Monday. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I wouldn't be exaggerating by saying that you're kind of the ideal reader, because I think every single thing that we cover pretty much relates directly to something that you have done or are doing. <laughs> so, so that's very, very nice to hear. So speaking of the present, right now, you have a show up that is digital only called The Future. And that's a temporality I definitely want to talk to you about because I think we're all thinking about what the post-COVID era is going to look like. But you also have a show up of Kenny Scharf's face paintings, which harkens back to the past, specifically to your early days of taking chances on young boundary-blurring artists in the 1980s like Scharf and also like the OG street artist himself, Basquiat. You've said in the past that you were the first person to have bought Basquiat's art. Can you tell the story behind that? Well, it is not clear that I was the very first person. There's also a question of whether Debbie Harry was the first purchaser. Uh, the circumstance was that, like everybody else who was living downtown late 70s and about 1980, I was totally entranced by the Samo concrete poetry on the walls of Chinatown, Bowery, Soho. And we all followed this and wondered who is Samo? And it came out that it was Jean-Michel Basquiat and Al Diaz. And it was very spare, but there was a genius to it. And it wasn't exactly graffiti. It wasn't exactly poetry. It was some fusion and was very, very fresh. And I remember very well going to a performance evening, the space on Canal Street. And it's a band playing, a band called Gray. And a friend of mine pointed out a young man in a heavy coat 
leaning over a beatbox and he said, that's Samo. That was the first time I saw Michelle Basquiat. And about a year later, I being very involved with the Times Square show. This was summer 1980. And all my artist friends got together. It was John Ahern, Tom Otternis, others in another group, Kiki Smith and her circle, connected to take over an abandoned massage parlor just below Times Square hmm. and met the Times Square show, which was the first place that Keith Haring showed public context for show John Michelle Mosca showed. It was where the graffiti artists and the art school artists and the downtown artists all came together. And it was an amazing thing. And those days, my role was more as a writer chronicler. And I wrote what I guess has become the definitive story of the Times Square show for <laughs> Art in America, the September 1980 issue. And in that story was the first mention of Jean-Michel Basquiat as an artist. Wow. There had been some about him, the village voice as Samo, but actually I was the first person to write about Jean-Michel Basquiat. <laughs> so I was just fascinated by this talent. And I asked my friend Diego Cortez, who was getting involved with Jean-Michel to help him, if I could be introduced. So Diego took me over to a tenement apartment building on the corner of First Avenue and First Street, where Jean-Michel had just begun living with his girlfriend, Suzanne Malouk. And we went up to the apartment. And the first thing that just astounded me was the refrigerator. It was one of these old-fashioned round refrigerators. Uh, it wasn't even white anymore. It turned yellow-brown. And Jean-Michel had painted, drawn all over the door. And I was stunned. And this was great. This was, for me, like the strongest new painting I had seen any artist uh, in my generation. And then all over the floor were these sheets of typing paper with Jean-Michel's drawings. And I got on my hands and knees and studied these drawings and I picked four of them and asked Jean-Michel, can I buy these? And yeah, sure. $50 each. I didn't have $200 cash on me. So we walked over to the ATM at the Citibank on LaGuardia Place. You couldn't get cash in the bodega in those days. You, know, you had to go actually to the bank where you had the account. So we went back and I picked up the four drawings, which I still have. Huh. And so I always thought for a long time that was the first purchase of actual Jean-Michel Basquiat art. I mean, it's a remarkable story because in addition to Basquiat, there's an argument to be made that you are the single most important figure who is not an artist, who is not Basquiat, who is not Banksy, in terms of popularizing street art as a form of fine art. And you've done this through representing artists like Shepard Fairey, like Swoon, Kenny Scharf, 
Uh, you've done this through the blockbuster Art in the Street show. You did MoCA in 2011. I want to get to talking about that, but it's funny that you were the guy who kind of came in to do this, and you came from a pretty buttoned-up background. I mean, before you came to the art business, you were uh, you were working at Citibank, creating its successful art lending division, which was really the first of its kind and kind of gave birth to what is now this growing financial services sector. And you worked as a private art advisor, buying and selling impressionist paintings and other kinds of work on the secondary market. How did these two circles kind of intersect? Yes, I, I have created a few monsters. <laughs> but Edward Shea's daughter, Sonny, once interviewed me. And she asked about these contradictions. And I said to her, yes, I'm a stealth bomber. <laughs> you know, I've always had a radical perspective on art. I come out of the counterculture generation and remember watching Nixon give a campaign speech in Hartford in 1968. There were some disruptive students who were making a scene there and I was fascinated. Who are they? And I heard, oh, they're from Wesleyan. Huh. And from that moment, I didn't want to go to Wesleyan, <laughs> which I And so Wesleyan had a great influence in my formation. And it's still a school that produces creative people. And so I, I had a great experience there. It introduced me to world music electronic music, the teachings of John Cage. I came into the art world already prepared to have a more open, iconoclastic view. And I remember very distinctly this one moment that drew me into the inside art world. Uh, at Wesleyan, there was an art library and they had a shelf with the latest periodicals. Hmm. And captured by the cover of Avalanche, it was 1973, Vito Acconci was on the cover. And I picked up the magazine, looked at, looked at Vito's radical performance art, and I just thought right there, if this is where art is, this is where I am going. <laughs> and uh, after that, I began driving down from Middletown, Connecticut to New York City, take the subway down to Soho, and I began visiting galleries, still as a college student. Then I opened up my own gallery in the Berkshires, um, near the summer home of the Boston Symphony at Tanglewood. And so there was no question that what I was going to do was I was going to get a job in an art gallery and eventually have my own gallery. So the two things that really struck me when I moved to New York in 1974, began working for the John Weber Gallery. It was known for showing minimalism and conceptualism. Hmm. The subways, the way they bombed with the beginning of wild style graffiti, I just loved it. And I would go down to the subway just to see the art. And then the other pursuit that I spent a lot of time with was the beginning of punk rock hmm. at CBGB and places. And uh, eventually I 
spent so much time following the bands and staying up too late. It just wasn't possible for me to get up early and be at my desk at the gallery at 10. So I had to find some other means of support, which I did, and allowed me to stay up all night. So I was totally steeped in these two subcultures hmm. before the night back to school, to the Harvard Business School. And I used to joke that I had gone to Harvard Business School to study art criticism. Hmm. And there was some truth to that because it was this economic perspective that allowed me to have a very fresh perspective on art history and on contemporary art and done some writing on these subjects over the years. Andy Warhol's a business artist and many other essays that take an economic perspective. I was also radicalized at Wesleyan University <laughs> where I went there to uh, study classics. And here I am today. So <laughs> Wesleyan did this. So you got your MBA and then you innovated the financial services sector and went on from that to running your gallery. But I want to ask a little bit about the financial chapter of your life a little bit, because it seems you've managed to weather a lot of downturns, market peaks, lots of different changes. You've been very nimble and you've also been very comfortable changing strategy in midstream. And I wonder if there's anything that you've learned from your days in finance and your days at Harvard Business School that have been very helpful in terms of navigating very uh, mercurial art business? Some people who get involved with art collecting are dealing sometimes in the beginning of a boom. They don't realize that these booms don't last forever. Hmm. So there are some flows. And in any field, uh, there are very dynamic periods. There are slow periods. And if you want to pursue this for a a lifetime, uh, you have to be prepared for strong periods in the market, weak periods. So for me, times when the market's down, that's actually the time for the best opportunity. <laughs> the early 90s, for instance, that was a wipeout. I came into the early 90s downturn with some resources and I bought aggressively and very strategically. I was able to buy great works from Fred Hughes' collection, works from Andy Warhol, works from the Saatchi collection, was being sold at auction. And very lucky that the artworks that I bought in the early 90s gave me a cushion. So... I could go through the rest of my career without really having to worry hmm. that there were some assets that I bought very inexpensively that when I need to can be sold and can provide for retirement. <laughs> so yes, you have to adapt your strategy and you have to change your strategy. So the gallery business as it was in 1974, when I joined, is very different than the gallery business today. So I remember when I got involved 
with the Citibank Art Advisory Program. Uh, many of the old school art dealers, art commentators, they thought what I was doing was as horrible. It was sacrilege. Uh, it was the end of civilization in <laughs> narrow world. And you know, people said, why would someone possibly go to a bank for advice on art and et cetera? You see how the field has adapted. And what I found, just give you a good example. So city bank account officers introduced me to very successful real estate developer in the Midwest, and he wanted to collect art. Brilliant person. He had no idea how to get access to the center. It was much more, this was 1982. Uh, there was no ArtNet news. <laughs> so to understand what prices were, what galleries you could trust, it was not really possible for someone in his situation without be some lucky break with an advisor, maybe his local museum director, but he didn't know the local museum director. And so not to talking and he became one of America's greatest art collectors huh. and a great relationship for me. It was a important part of my own history. And, and so without an, an art advisory structure, without an art advisory structure, attached to a bank or another organization that he had confidence in, he never would have bought art. Who was this real estate developer? He's passed on now. Dick Jacobs. Mm -hmm. He owned the Cleveland Indians and the ball field was called Jacobs Field <laughs> back in those days. But the most significant acquisition I got for him was the Jim Rosenquist F-111. Oh, wow. We worked to build a special gallery for this ground floor of one of his office buildings and sensational there. Huh. That's most interesting and rewarding art market stories. There are a few of them. Speaking of real estate developers, interesting tidbit is that you, back in the early days of starting your own art advisory firm, were living and working in Trump Tower, which I think back then <laughs> was, had a different connotation. But what is it like to look back on going up that brass escalator in the morning. What, what is that like? That's a very interesting question. So when I was actively working as an art advisor, I went to visit a retired museum director who had established a small art dealing enterprise working out of an apartment in Trump Tower. And we go up there and with the attended elevators, everything very clean and beautiful apartment. And I thought, well, this, this is very interesting. This is much better than uh, a small office, a building on 57th Street with a creaky elevator. And I thought, well, you know, this is something I might think of. Hmm. So when I was about to go into my own business, starting on my art advisor business, um, I had no capital at the time because I was still earning a modest salary as a Citibank vice president. He didn't make a lot of money in those days, that kind of position. I had an idea. I had helped one of my clients, Dacus Yolanu, who had a large apartment in Trump Tower. I'd helped him to buy the small one-bedroom apartment adjoining his. And I was 
because he was in Greece and I helped with the lawyer and the transfer. And an idea, I said, Dacus, start my own business. How about I barter art advisory services for a year for use of the new apartment, which he wasn't using. He just got it because it was next door. And Dacus said, well, of course, yes. <laughs> so instantly, I had a prestigious address that was perfect. At first, I lived in the bedroom, and then the, the living room was the office and showroom. Luckily, I took a lot of the good clients from Citibank. They followed me. And so it soon became just my office. My art dealer friends would all ask, can you sell art to Donald Trump? <laughs> and I said, well, let's try. Let's give it a try. But as we all know, for Donald Trump, art is basically a big mirror with a gigantic gold frame where he can look at a reflection of himself. <laughs> and now not succeed in selling art to Donald Trump. I mean, not even Andy Warhol could succeed in selling. Andy Warhol made portraits of Trump Tower and Trump wouldn't buy it. <laughs> Correct. The other uh, attempt to sell art in Trump Tower, so some very interesting people were there during the decade I lived there. So for an extended period, six months or so, Michael Jackson, at the height of his fame, lived in Trump Tower wow. when he was recording in a New York. And so Jeff Coons and I cooked up an idea. It was really, in the end, not a very good idea that we would try to sell one of the versions of Jeff Coons' famous porcelain sculpture, Michael Jackson and Bubbles, to <laughs> Michael Jackson. <laughs> wow. I, you know, with a minor payoff, I got one of the elevator operators to put the Jeff Koons San Francisco Museum survey show book with the Michael Jackson sculpture on the cover to put it on Michael's coffee table with <laughs> no, <laughs> that didn't happen. But luckily it ended up in a much better place at a centerpiece of the collection of the Broad in Los Angeles. <laughs> mm -hmm. To fast forward at incredible speeds, you had a tremendously successful and historically important run as an art dealer in New York City for years. Deitch Projects was really one of the beating hearts of the downtown scene. You launched the careers of Kahinde Wiley, countless other stars. And then in 2010, you shocked everybody by saying goodbye to New York and taking the job as director of L.A. MoCA. To say that your tenure there was turbulent would be an understatement. How would you briefly describe the arc of your time there? I was very friendly with several of the people on the MOCA board and Eli Broad, Maria Bell, who was the board co-chair. They loved the program of Deitch Projects and the consensus of the board leadership there was Jeffrey Deitch would be the right person to lead MOCA into the present of Los Angeles where there's a lot of potential, but when I got there, MOCA was under the supervision of the Attorney General and attendance had plummeted. And so they thought that my approach to art, opening things up, opening to new audiences, that was going to be very positive for MOCA. And we started off great, 
but I walked into a dysfunctional situation and there were a few mistakes. I should have insisted that certain situations there with staff should have been dealt with before I arrived. But Mm -hmm. we put on some great shows. I put on 50 exhibitions events in three years. We published the Mocha Index, which documents all of that. And the great Art in the Street show, that's the most celebrated project that I did, brought in the highest attendance of any contemporary art exhibition in the history of a Los Angeles museum. Mm -hmm. So a lot of interesting things, but it became too contentious. And while I was there, my friends would say, what do you need this for? You can just do this on your own. You don't need all of the problems, the museum situation. So I decided, you're right, I'm going to do this on my own. And it took me a little while, but I found the perfect space. And when I mentioned to Frank Gehry that I found the space and Frank, as he says, volunteered to design the gallery for me. And now I have basically my own mini museum in LA. I can do it my way. (laughs) One question I want to ask relating to the MOCA situation first, which is that one thing that really set off this whole firestorm was when you let go the highly regarded curator, Paul Schimmel. After he left, five artists stepped down from the board. It was a big controversy. But then Paul Schimmel went to Hauser and Wirth. He stayed there for four years until he was very abruptly dismissed from that job as well. And nobody really knows what happened there. And I wonder, do you have any idea what happened with Schimmel at Hauser and Wirth? Well, let me say, uh, Paul Schimmel was always a friend of mine. That's one of the reasons I wanted to be I We're the same age. We came into the art world at the same time. I got to know him in the mid-1970s. We were both beginning our careers. And hmm. one of the reasons I wanted to go to MoCA was to work with Paul. Unfortunately, things didn't work out the way I had hoped. All I can say now is... Paul Schimmel is, again, a friend of mine, and he's one of the most enthusiastic visitors to my galleries. He sees all the shows, he comes, he brings friends. So I'm the type of person, I I look at the positive, not at the negative. That's how I I look at the situation at MoCA, too. (laughs) It was very traumatic at times, but... In L.A., because of the culture, the movie business, they love a comeback. (laughs) So being somehow like the number one public enemy in the L.A. art world, now it seems I'm friends again with everybody. Again, I'm always looking at the positive and I don't look back. This March, the coronavirus hit New York and then kind of spread across the country. There were predictions. I think Carolina Miranda of the L.A. Times published a report saying that between a quarter and a third of L.A. galleries expected to have to close by the end of the year for good. A lot of people were really battening the hatches and trying to save their skin. You responded by launching something called Gallery Platform L.A. Can you talk a little bit about the idea behind Gallery Platform L.A.? So when I opened the gallery in L.A. two years ago, 
I wondered, is there a Los Angeles Gallery Association? And the Art Dealers Association in New York is national, but it's more New York oriented. I thought, well, we should have one in LA. When the pandemic started, reading the same story that you read from Carolina Miranda, we need to do something here. So this was the time to realize this idea of the Los Angeles Gallery Association and form a platform so that artists, galleries could sell online and to somehow have some semblance of community. And, and so I sent out a letter to 65 Los Angeles galleries asking if they would like to join this online platform. Every single gallery except one said yes. So now we have more than 80 galleries who are on the platform and we have a gallery association. <laughs> and the idea was to have, you've seen it, editorial content, visits to collectors, visits to artists that have been very popular. The online sales component to help galleries, it's gone okay. Wouldn't say that sales online have been great, but the most important fact is that all these galleries are talking to each other. Hmm. And so for a while, we had weekly meetings with the operating committee of 15 people plus like 20 people online. And it's been fantastic to share concerns. So I'm very happy with the result that we've really enhanced <laughs> the whole Los Angeles art. There's tremendous enthusiasm for it. And now we have to get to a new stage. We're seeing light at the end of the tunnel. And I think that this will become a permanent association that's going to help create more energy in the Los Angeles art community. And now that we're running to the end of the year, it doesn't seem as if that prediction of the mass gallery closures has so far materialized. Do you know why that is? This is something that's quite remarkable. Last March, I was prepared to have a year with virtually no business. <laughs> I remember some other difficult periods after 9-11, for instance, and there was no art business at all for two months or more. And it was considered impolite even to offer a work of art. So I thought maybe something similar might happen during the pandemic. So for the first couple of months, same thing. I didn't feel it was appropriate to call people and try to sell them work of art. But then May, collectors started calling me and asking my opinion on something else they were offered or asking, hey, so what do you have for me? And... Other gallerists told me the same thing was going on, that a lot of the collectors, they weren't traveling, they were at home, not in their offices, and people who love art were focused on art level that they couldn't focus on when they were busy with business travel and all the, the other conventional activities. <laughs> and so there's the first online auction, which did very well. So Sotheby's and Christie's have been astute and 
at first limiting the supply. So I think that was well thought out, hmm. you know, rather than auctions with a thousand lots. Something that, that was interesting is that in our experience, we're not finding new people who are connecting with us online. It's the same people we've cultivated over the years who see something online and then call me up and discuss it. And what this experience has shown is that we have a strong core of dedicated art lovers, art collectors, for whom art collecting is a central part of what they do. <laughs> and they're continuing, they're not going away. It's been a period of economic pain for many people, but luckily it's not been a total economic wipeout. It's not just super wealthy, it's people who like to buy art and continue to buy art. And it's a number of the trends which have fueled a strong art market during the past decade have continued. One is low interest rates. And so there are not a lot of opportunities in hard assets to earn big returns. And so art is attractive. <laughs> and then, of course, it's the globalization and a lot of material and on Artnet and other art market reports about how Asian buying has remained very strong. Mm -hmm. And so the globalization of the art market, the art world has had a gigantic effect. And then so many interesting artists, gallerists, collectors. And so big difference from when I started, when it was a very small circle concentrated New York City, a uh, few people in other U.S. cities, in Western Europe, a little bit from Latin America. Now it is increasingly global, not totally global, but the art world is so much bigger today than it was when I began almost 50 years ago. <laughs> so we talked about how far fewer galleries have had this kind of catastrophic financial pain that was expected. And we know that most dealers are not really the most savvy business people. They're primarily art aficionados, are very passionate about what they do. But you, on the other hand, are a very savvy businessman. And you have a Harvard MBA, you, you've, <laughs> you've worked on Wall Street. And as far as I can tell, you have a, a fairly diversified revenue streams with money coming in from sales from gallery shows, the private art advisory business. How has this pandemic stress tested the structure of your operation that you've created? I always subsidized the public program with art advisory projects and private art dealing. So it gave me the resources to present basically a non-commercial program hmm. and Deitch projects. We didn't think of whether the exhibitions would make money or not. So that was a wonderful position to be in. With the Los Angeles Gallery now, it's, this is like a mini museum, the expenses are high. So I can't think that way anymore. <laughs> Still, it's the private dealing and art advisory that largely subsidizes the gallery program. I 
hope that the Calvary program will begin to pay for itself and make some more money. In a certain way, I'm a startup, even though I've been in this 50 years, to close your gallery. All the staff disperses, the artists all go in different galleries. I've had to start all over again, even though I maintain my network of relationships. For me, the art advisory business, that's a constant hmm. because the people who pay us retainers and project fees, well, that's continued during the pandemic because public art projects, collection strategy, that is ongoing. So that's been very good. That's a constant revenue stream. So the private dealing has been reduced and the gallery projects were it also, that's not the same like with our Los Angeles gallery now. We can't even open to the public in a normal way. We're open by appointment, <laughs> but we're very careful. I can't be asking lots of people to attend. So that's a little slower. But yes, it's very valuable to have a diverse revenue stream. So you're not dependent only on whether you can sell the work in your current exhibition. Hmm. So in, a, in addition to the tumultuous economic climate of this year, it has obviously also been a tremendous year for social change that has hopefully begun to reshape the art industry in some beneficial ways. You know, for instance, debates have been roiling museums as far as the diversity of representation in both the art that they show and in their management ranks as well. And art galleries have also been looking in the mirror and working to make changes both to their rosters and to the people who run the galleries themselves. So what do you make of this moment and where do you think things are going to go from here? This has been a period of reset. So the pandemic slowdown has given us the opportunity to look at what we're doing. Is what we're doing meaningful? Are we addressing pressing issues in the world and the, the tragedies of the police violence and the consequent social protests. You know, this of course has a big effect on all of us. And the art world is liberal in its orientation, but it's important for people in the art business, any business, to think uh, what is the social impact? What are the implications of what we're doing? How we can contribute to make a better world? You know, there's some cynicism, of course, that you can uh, window dressing, connect with some current trends, and then you're sort of okay that they won't come after you. <laughs> and there's some of that. But I think most of what we see in the art world is very profoundly felt. One of the most important missions for me has been open up the art world into people coming from diverse directions. And if you ask what is the most significant thing that's happened, particularly in American art, that's it. The entry of all these great African-American artists, both contemporary and then an increased consciousness of artists from an earlier generation, 
Jack Whitten, uh, Al Loving, Benny Andrews, Faith Ringle, amazing talents who were there all the time, but did not have the central role in the mainstream art discourse. There's one thing that kind of itches at the back of my mind when I see all of these incredible shows and artists, you know, having their careers take off and the increased representation of the black figure in the art that we're all engaging with and talking about is really encouraging. But at a certain level, there's a symbolic dimension to this kind of representation. And we know that in American culture, the kind of representation that really matters in the black community is economic representation. I wonder if there's some kind of dystopian version of what's happening where the actual money is not being made by the artists in the majority of cases, but actually being made by the speculative white collectors who come in and buy it, where there is just not the same mass of black collecting population to be coming in and accruing this wealth that is going to appreciate over time. And that's obviously a very complicated question, but what do you think about that? Well, a number of the black artists who we show in the gallery are very determined to sell their art to black collectors. Hmm. And so an important part of what we do is connecting with collectors who will also open up the artistic dialogue. There is this other phenomenon of a small group of speculators who love to play at the auctions, trying to game the system, to buy cheap from a gallery, not being straightforward about what they're really doing, and then flipping the art at an auction. This is very unfortunate. When I began, there was a general understanding in the auction houses that they did not allow new art to be auctioned. And it had to be vintage. And this was broken in the early 90s. Anyway, that's a different story. The only way to do this is for the auction houses to have a moratorium and say, we're not going to encourage the speculation by auctioning the hot young artist. But that can't really be done. Let's say even if... Sotheby's and Christie's said, okay, we're not going to auction works that were made less than 10 years ago. Then Phillips or another auction house would step in and do it. So I think, unfortunately, that's there to stay. Yes, there are people who are essentially professional speculators who have gamed the system, taking advantage of artists and galleries by making more money on one auction sale than an artist has in their entire career. But the way to deal with this is the gallerist, as we're all trying to do, to be much more careful of knowing our client and <laughs> selling judiciously. And then I advise the artists, make sure out of every show, keep one of your best paintings you will benefit from this upside. So with the distribution of the vaccine underway, it looks like we're finally 
starting to be able to dream <laughs> about the pandemic being over. And people often talk about envisioning the future as a hybrid of the before times and the lessons we've learned from the coronavirus era. So what would you say are some of the biggest lessons the art world and the art market has learned or should have learned from this year? First, I say is that the belief in art and art collecting has remained very strong. It's a solid international field. And even something like the pandemic can't damage the global interest in particularly in new art. Now, the other is this is a continuation of a trend that today's art collector, art audience, they want a lot of information. They want to know about the artist. They want to see a photo of the artist in the studio. They want to read an interview with the artist. They want to know notes about the artwork they're looking at. They want to understand it more in context of maybe use a VR to see it on the wall of their own home and to see it scale. So this information and the ability to visualize works of art in different spaces, that enhances the whole art business structure. And so I think people will continue to want this. So something that I see through how we're selling, how we maintain our relationships, is that these relationships are key. This is central to the art business, to the art world. It's so much about personal relationships. So yes, people buy prints and lesser things online, but for people to get involved in a deep way with art collecting, it's a personal relationship with gallerist, with art advisor, with the local museum curator. It really comes out of these personal networks. And these networks are surprisingly small. Remember, it's about relationships. And the goal here is maybe we can find a few people who we can have new relationships with. So it's not about all kinds of transactions. It's about finding these key people who want to have the discourse with us, who want to explore the art with us and join our our enthusiasm. Hmm. Well, you know, it, it feels like, you know, as we come to New Year's that we're at this incredible hinge moment in history. And so it's been a real pleasure to have you on the show and hear your panoramic perspective on everything that's come before, where we are now, and what's around the bend. So thank you very much for coming on the show, Jeffrey. Well, thanks, Andrew. And I'm a loyal Artnet News follower, so I'm very happy to be on Artnet News myself. I hope you continue to enjoy what we're doing. And that's it for this week's episode of The Art Angle. If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Also, take a moment to rate and review us. It will help other listeners discover what we're doing. The Art Angle is produced by Sonia Madinoli, Tim Schneider, and Caroline Goldstein. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.